reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, begin reading from verse 14. Uh, these two sermons be preaching for us uh, today, this morning, this afternoon, uh, from a series that I've prepared called Knowing Jesus. And uh, we begin here in uh, Ephesians 3 from verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. John Calvin wrote in his uh, famous book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he, he said that, that doctrine, uh, teaching doctrines, it's not an affair of the tongue, but of the life. If, if, if our doctrines and our, and our teaching are merely an affair or a matter of words that we speak or words that we confess, but not the life. It's, it's a little bit like having a holiday brochure, but never actually experiencing a holiday. Some, some have called our, our doctrines, our confessions, they're like a, a roadmap for uh, the scriptures. And a roadmap is a good thing to have. But if you never go to the place that the map is a map of, your map is only ever a map. You never get to experience what the map is being given for. And, and, and that can often be the case, or it seems to be the case, when it comes to our, our doctrines, the doctrines we uphold. And, and Calvin went on to say this. He said, doctrine is not apprehended merely by the intellect, merely by our minds. Like other branches of learning, he said, doctrine is, only, is received only when it possesses the whole being, the whole soul. And, and that's what Paul's talking about here in this prayer in Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 3, um, this prayer concludes the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And the first half of this letter contains some of the, the, the great doctrines that, that we confess and, and uphold. Uh, chapter 1 looks at the doctrine of election and, and predestination. Uh, chapter 2, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ and not on works. We love those doctrines. 
And then the second half of Ephesians, Paul looks at how these things are lived out in life. And in between, you have this prayer. And this prayer that Paul is praying is not simply a prayer. I see. This prayer is not simply a prayer for facts, that we know facts. He's praying that we'd, we'd have a knowledge that goes beyond knowledge, a knowledge that surpasses knowledge, a knowledge that's not simply in our heads but is in our hearts, a knowledge that will make us less fearful in life, a knowledge that will make us more hopeful in life, a knowledge that makes us humble people. A knowledge that responds to adversity in better ways than what we often do. A knowledge that, that is designed to change us and make us godly. That's what knowledge of Jesus is meant to do in us. How well do you think you know Jesus? How do we get that knowledge? What does it mean to, to know Jesus? That's what we want to think about this morning. There is a knowledge that, that goes beyond knowledge, a knowledge that surpasses knowledge. And we'll think about that under three headings. Firstly, your inner being. We want to think about this expression, your inner being. Secondly, we are to apprehend the love of Christ. And then thirdly, what does it mean to be filled with God's fullness? So firstly, let's think about our inner being. Paul prays in verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What is this thing called the inner being? Well, Scripture makes a distinction between our, our inner being and our outer being. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, um, uh, Samuel's gone to the household of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel and, and, and the sons of Jesse, the parading before Samuel. And he, he looks at, at the first and says, well, well, this is a pretty fine specimen. But God says to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul makes the same distinction when he says, Therefore we don't lose heart, though our outer self, our outer being is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. What is this inner being? It is what the Bible calls our heart, which Paul mentions in verse 17. Now, the heart in Scripture is not the organ that pumps blood around your body and that beats. And it's not simply a, a, a catch-all phrase for what we feel, as, as many people today would say, oh, I don't feel this in my heart. The heart in Scripture is the control center of your being. Your whole being, it consists of your mind, how you think, your will, 
what you want to do and what you don't want to do. Your conscience, your ability to discern right from wrong. And the passions, the affections, what we love, what we desire, what we feel. Now, now we can easily assume that it's our outer life that strengthens the inner life. That is, when my outer life is good, when my outer life is strong, when my outer life is uh, beautiful, when, when my outer life looks good, then my inner life will be as well. But the reality might be, if you're, if you're having that approach, is that you're using the outer life to prop up the inner life. What that means is that if your outer life is a real struggle, if it's just a mess, or it doesn't look fine, it looks really bad, then your inner life is going to be a struggle. It's going to look really bad. But the problem with that approach is that you keep looking to the outer life to fix the inner life. And we'll notice here the context for this prayer is in verse 13. Paul is here, he's in prison. And, and he, he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. And for that reason, he prays. And what he doesn't pray is that he doesn't pray that he'll get out of prison. He doesn't pray that he won't suffer. Rather, he prays that the believers would be strengthened with power. That is, they'd have the ability through the Holy Spirit in their inner being. And the reason he prays this prayer is not simply so that they'd be happy. He gives the reason in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Christ does not dwell in your heart naturally. Christ doesn't dwell in anyone's heart <laughs> naturally. Well, remember from chapter 2 what Paul calls this. He says we're, we're objects of wrath, dead in sin, unfit dwelling places for God being rich in mercy because of his great love has made believers alive in Christ and that's that's what we call in theology regeneration but the Holy Spirit but that's not what Paul's praying for here he's not praying for people to be regenerated He's praying that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith the word dwell here it means to dwell permanently. Um, Christ does not dwell in a believer's heart the way we might go and use an Airbnb. He doesn't turn up for a few days and then move on. The word means that he dwells in our hearts as the owner and he's going to renovate the place. That begins now in a being. What regard do you have for your inner being? Do you find yourself prioritizing your outer being? Or relying on your outer being to prop up and be the measure of what's going on in your inner being? Do you recognize with the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17 that our hearts are deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand them? And yet in the same passage, Jeremiah says this earlier in verse 5. He says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes 
flesh, the outer man, his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. What regard do you have for your inner being? If you have little regard for your inner being, if, if you aren't being strengthened in your inner being through the Holy Spirit, if you assume that it's the outer that strengthens the inner, you're going to be a slave and, and subject to the winds of change that go on all around us. You're going to be rocked by the turbulence of life in this present evil age. You're going to be rocked even by your own weakness. You'll be perpetually discouraged. And your life will bear little resemblance to Christ, if any at all. Friends, what steps do you take to prioritise your inner life? What steps can we take? Well, we move on to point two, apprehending Christ's love. Paul, Paul says here in verse the second part of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Christians are rooted and, and grounded in love. Now, perhaps it just washes over our heads. This was a radical idea in the first century. Being rooted and grounded in love, the believers in Ephesus could come together as Jew and Gentile, not hate each other. Being rooted and grounded in love means that slaves and masters could come together in the church and not despise one another. And, and not, not just bag each other the way we might bag our boss at work. And, and men and women could come together in the church community and not manipulate and use one another for each other's Self-interest. And rich and poor, they could come together in the church community without showing contempt for one another or envying the way many do today. Is everything okay? Yeah? Do we need to pause for a minute? Okay. Take your time. This, this idea of being rooted and grounded in love is a radical idea. It's an extraordinary idea. It's, it's still a radical idea. Can, can you imagine people on the left and people on the right coming together in the, in the same community and not hating each other? It's radical. But we often reduce love to simply how we feel. And when you do that, you, you end up emptying this, this radical concept of love, emptying of its depth and richness so that it will have all the structural integrity and stabilizing properties of a bowl of jelly. 
Because your feelings change. And they change very quickly. Or we can uh, re- assume that this radical idea of love is, is the most obvious thing in the world. Or we can assume that actually we're pretty good at it. Until uh, your feelings get hurt or you clash with someone or something happens and, and, and you, 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 you have to forgive someone and find it's a very hard thing to do. The love that, that the believers are rooted and grounded in is not our own love. And it's not our, our world's view of love. It is the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that love, that love is secure. That love is reliable. And that love is enduring. That love gives stability to your life. Paul's prayer goes on that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength, the ability to comprehend. This word comprehend, uh, we could also translate it apprehend. It means to to lay hold of, to to take hold of something and to do this with our inner being, with with all the faculties of our human being, our, our mind, our will, our conscience, our passions, and not just the mind. Or not just the emotions, but, but, but the inner being with all of its vast dimensions. And you'll notice we do this not isolated from each other, but we do this with all the saints. We do this with other Christians. And we do it with other Christians because that's where our love is developed. That's where our love will show itself. That's where our love will be tested. And Paul goes on here to show that the love of God in Christ, is there's so much more to it than we think. So much more to lay hold of, so much more to apprehend in our inner being. It is broad, long, high and deep. It's, it's broad, it's expansive. It's, it's so broad it includes Jew and Gentile. In fact, it includes people from every tribe, language, nation and tongue there's no one for whom the love of God in this world can't be apprehended. It's broad. It's, it's long. It's, it's more lasting. It's more enduring. It's love not simply for the present, but love that will still be there for the future, whatever that might hold. In fact, Paul tells us in the chapter 1 that this love actually began before the, the world began. In love, he predestined us. It's, it's high. Psalm 36 verse 5 tells us, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. It's high. It seats lowly, sinful people, people who are unworthy, with Christ in the heavenly places, we're told in chapter 2. It's deep. It descended from heaven took the form of a servant who humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. And it did so in order to reach the lowest. It did so in order to reach the most degraded of sinners. The love of God exceeds our ability to comprehend it. 
Why do we need to lay hold of, apprehend the love of Christ in our inner being? What happens when we do? Well, three things happen. We've touched on the first one already. It gives you a stable foundation. A stable foundation for your life that you can build your life on. It, it, it is deep soil for our life to put roots into. You, you've seen a lot of these trees come down in, in the storms. The believer stands upright in the storm because they have deep roots. And that deep, the depth of that deepness is just so deep that it will withstand any storm. Because the love of God in Christ is fixed, it's immovable, and provides us with something reliable to build our life on. That's the first result. The second is that it undoes the effects of sin in our life. It, it renovates us from the inside out. How does it do that? It breaks down our resistance to God. It melts the hardness of our hearts toward Him and toward others. It strips away the impurity of our motives and our passions. It undoes that desire for the outward to fix the inward. And it reorients ourselves away from ourselves toward God, toward Christ and toward each other. I think we all know it's a lot easier to love someone who loves us. That is, it's, it's so much easier to love someone you know is for you and not against you. We, we, we tend to respond to love with love. But suppose for a moment uh, you've, you've shown love and kindness to someone and they ignore it. Or they respond to it with uh, respond to your love with indifference, or they give you a nasty look, or attacking words, or maybe they respond with fake love. You know the kind, pretentious kind, hypocrisy. What would you say about that person's heart, the state of their heart? You would say their heart was hard. You would even say, you might even say that that heart was incapable of love. And that is what sin produces in us. That's, that's what we inherit from Adam. It's what the grace of God has been revealed to us that we might apprehend it with our heart to undo. That, 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 that's how we are renovated from the inside out. And it's the Spirit of God that enables us to apprehend Christ. And the degree to which you lay hold of Christ, that you apprehend Christ in your inner being, will be the degree to which you grow in faith. And the love of Christ will become visible in your life. But the third result, and this is our, our third point. Paul says in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Um, Jesus, Colossians tells us 
In Jesus is all the fullness of God. Uh, Paul puts it this way in chapter 2 of Colossians. He says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Another way of saying this, you're being renewed into the image of Christ so that you become more like Christ. And, and, and our character begins to reflect the character of God in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? How does, how does that show itself? Well, it means that this divine love becomes our goal. That's, that's what we want to show. That's what we want to be seen in us. And not the fake kind, not the, not the pretentious kind, not the self-interested kind. We might remember it's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Divine love becomes our goal. It means that mercy will be shown to others. We, we, we've received the mercy of God. That's part of his character. That's part of his fullness. He's merciful to us. Just as we've been shown mercy, we will show mercy ourselves. Our grievances we, we won't cling to. Our grievances, we, we won't let them foster that they become bitterness. But we'll forgive, not grudgingly, but willingly. It means that suffering is not something that we will charge against God and say, God, why are you doing this? What reason do you have for this? Rather, we come to see suffering as a means of God's grace by which we participate with Christ in his suffering. We become more like him who suffered for us. It means we are clothed with Jesus Christ so that we no longer live for ourselves, but Christ lives in us. Isn't it an extraordinary thought? Someone like you Someone like me can be filled with all the fullness of God. That's that ought to blow our minds. It's such a lofty thought that John Stott, the British uh, preacher, author, pastor, he said this about it. He said, "Such is the boldness of this prayer." It's like a staircase that ascends to the very top. But as climbers on that staircase, we often find ourselves uh, a bit disoriented, a bit giddy perhaps, a bit out of breath and in need of strengthening. But recognize this, if you're too occupied with your outer being, if, if, if you're too busy to give attention to your inner being, if faith fills the head but not the heart, your growth will be stifled. It'll be choked out by thorns and thistles and at some point it'll become all just too hard and too much and you risk stepping off. But if you find yourself on that staircase, 
you're thinking, look, it's just too steep. It's just too high. If you sense that you're on that staircase and you're stalled um, and you're stagnant, you're, you're, you're out of breath, you're looking for the hand rough. If you know you're weak, you know you need strengthening, please hear what Paul says in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. <laughs> Praise God that God's ability to, to, to work in us exceeds our ability to ask for it. And, and praise God that God's ability to, to work in us exceeds, and is not limited to what we think is able to do. And that may well be the most liberating thing that you could ever hear in the Christian life. Perhaps that's the most stimulating thing that you could ever hear in the Christian life. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work in us. And that is the power of God. When we trust in him, God is at work in us. He works in us by his power, regardless of circumstance, to do in us something glorious, something beyond imagination that he would fill us with himself. So friends, if Jesus dwells in you, if you are a Christian, you have what you need to not lose heart. You have what you need to be able to flourish. You have what you need to be able to grow. You have what you need to be able to commune with God to obey God, to live for God, regardless of what is going on. But you need to prioritise your inner being. You need to be strengthened in your inner being continually that you would apprehend, take hold of the love of Christ, not just simply the benefits of what he can give to us, but that we would know him. Know him more and more, that we'd be filled with God's fullness. Indeed, this is knowledge that surpasses knowledge. Amen.